Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm here with a great group of teachers, university faculty, Fulbright award winners, uh, and pre-service teachers who are just graduated. Um, and we're gathering today for our third book club. Uh, the book we read is titled For White, for White Folks Who Teach in the Hood and the Rest of Y'all Too, Reality, Pedagogy, and Urban Education by Christopher Emden, who's a associate professor at Teachers College at Columbia University. Uh, so to start, uh, we have a bigger book club this time than before, and I want to just kind of have everybody go around and introduce themselves, maybe just state your name, where you teach, and how long you've been teaching. Um, so I'll start, and then I'll go to Carrie. Uh, my name is Risto Martinen. I'm an assistant and soon-to-be associate professor. Whoop. That's a promotion over summer. Uh, at George Mason University, and I've been in higher ed as an adjunct and as a PhD student and then an assistant professor since 2008. Uh, before that, I taught uh, part-time, but I taught at um, uh, Central Harlem in New York uh, while I was getting my doctorate degree in, uh, at Teachers College. So uh, let's go to Carrie. Um, hi, it's actually Kari. My name is Kari Orndorff, and I teach at uh, Montana State University. I'm an assistant professor there. Um, just finished my second year at Montana State. Um, I have been a K. I was a K-12 teacher for 18 years, and um, then I taught at the University of Rhode Island for four. Got my PhD at the University of South Carolina, and and so this will be my what four, three, seven, eight, nine, ninth year at higher ed. Awesome. Um, and I do remember oh, yeah. that you said Kari on one of the peak collaborative calls, and it takes me it takes me a while to learn my learn my lessons. Uh, That's okay. So let's go to our. It looks just like Harry. Let's go to our newest graduate from George Mason University, Greg Coogan. Well, that was pretty much my introduction. Oh, there you <laughs> go. All Greg right. Greg Coogan just graduated from Mason. Risto is my professor, and pretty much it. <laughs> All right, Clancy. Thanks, Risto, and welcome, friends and colleagues. Uh, appreciate being on with uh, some great uh, professionals. Uh, my name is Clancy Seymour. I'm much like Risto, soon to be associate professor at Canisius College in western New York, of, uh, the western part of the state, Buffalo, New York area. Proud Canisius College again. Um, I completed my doctoral work in educational leadership. Uh, I've been teaching at Canisius College since, uh, well, full-time in the Department of Kinesiology since 2007. I've been working at the college for 20, almost 25 years prior to that. My experience is in uh, urban youth, uh, uh, particularly with uh, physical activity programs as well. Uh, but my research is now all geared towards physical education and pedagogy. and. Uh, Last but not least, I like long walks, long beach. Well, there's no beach in Canisius, is there? I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm, I'm sure there's a bunch of lakes <laughs> out there by Buffalo. Touche, touche. Frozen beaches, frozen beaches, yeah. Uh, and Michael. Yeah, my name is Michael Ertel. I am a health and physical educator at Buffalo Public Schools. And this will be my sixth year of full-time teaching I am a former student of Clancy, proud Canisius alum, 
and I appreciate the invitation for a great conversation tonight. Absolutely. Uh, the recent Fulbright Award winner, Sarah Flory, associate professor. For yeah. thanks, Bristo. I'm I'm Sarah Flory, associate professor at the University of South Florida in balmy Tampa, Florida. Um, I've been at USF for about 11 years now, I think. Um, prior to that, I did my doctoral work uh, and my master's degree and uh, taught K through eight PE and health um, right outside of Detroit, Michigan, uh, at Wayne State University, and then at one of the charter schools there. So, lots of fun and um, happy to be here. Awesome. We have a strong northern presence here: Michigan, some upstate New York, Montana, Canadra. Can you uh, can you give us another state? Um, the state of Maryland. Yes. See, closer okay. to home here. <laughs> okay. So my name is Kenidra. Very happy to be here. Looking forward to a great conversation. I am a K through 12 health and physical education specialist. I am a 15 year educator. I've taught in Maryland public schools, some awesome counties in Maryland. I um, have learned a lot about our profession and I'm excited. I'm always passionate about teachers and kids and serving the best way I can. Um, I'm currently in a doctoral program in the University of Maryland College Park in Educational Leadership. And I am also working as uh, I lead a team of awesome individuals who are working on the Shape America EDI Equity, Diversity and Inclusion um, podcast series. So we will launch a podcast series at some point this year. We are in the planning stages of it, but we're covering all topics, equity, diversity and inclusion. And we've been working on it for almost about six to eight months. So I'm excited about that. Awesome. And Dan, you're only last because you're the last person on the squares of Hollywood Squares on my Zoom call. So uh, Dan, finish it up. Sure. <laughs> so my name is uh, <clears throat> Dan Vidiotoda, and I am a health and physical education teacher in Toronto, Ontario. Uh, I've been teaching for, <laughs> that's great, <laughs> I'm fellow Canadians here, which is great. Um, I've been teaching for close to 20 years. I'm not there yet. It will be my 19th year. And I also uh, work with York University here in Toronto, and I'm a, uh, an instructional leader providing additional qualification courses for other teachers who are passionate about uh, health. Awesome. And Dan has been on the podcast talking about the Ontario uh, HP curriculum. Um, so you can check that out. But let's get into the book. This is what we're here for. Um, Again, as I told um, all of the people on the call, I, I have some questions set up. We might get to them, we might not, but I will pitch it with the first one, um, which is what did you read in the book that you found most relatable to your practice? So just feel free to jump in at any point. So what did you find most relatable? Sarah. I'll jump in, yeah. Um... As I was, so I, I listened and I read this book at this kind of, I had to kind of use, use a blended, a hybrid approach, if you will, to make sure I could finish it because, you know, the semester kind of got hectic. But um, a thing that kept sort of repeating itself over to me was the importance of, of establishing relationships. And that's something that I've always um, pushed with my students. You know, they're like, oh, but, I, you know, we got to get kids fit. We got to do this. We got to do this. And I say, it doesn't matter if your kids don't trust you. So I really felt that um, Dr. Emden really drove home the point of truly knowing your students and, and establishing relationships with them in order to be an effective teacher. So that was, um, that was really a, a really strong point for me. 
Yeah, I, I noticed that in, in looking at the after-school programs that we run, I realized that I really need to focus on our training and our mentorship of those coaches who are going into those programs. Like, like I've taken PhD-level courses on culturally responsive pedagogy. Like, I, I kind of understand parts of it. I think that when I'm in the room, I'm cognizant of that. But I don't know if I'm actually taking the time to make sure that the students who are going and teaching, who are actually the people in front of those young kids in the, in the programs, um, if that is done correctly. And, you know, I think uh, personally for like PEAT training, like pre-service teaching, um, I feel like I do part of it. But who's to say that this is only relatable to K to 12? Like these relationships, understanding the culture of your students, knowing that they tick in different ways, whether it's video games or whatever it is, I, I feel like um, I could do a better job in trying to like engage in that uh, culture a little bit more. Uh, what do you think, Dan? I agree. And actually, you both started off with a really strong point. That's what I really grasped from the book. One part that he... Um, that the author stated, right? He said that teachers are taught to perceive any expression and then in brackets verbal as negative disruptors, right? So the whole idea, what Sarah mentioned, now what you mentioned is trying to connect with them emotionally prior. So um, if, you know, on Twitter or, or any other social media platform, you'll see these amazing phys ed teachers doing these amazing things to understand what is their emotional state entering the gym. There's so many cool things like slapping the wall, uh, different types of uh, posters, even something simple that I do is look at just a regular fist pump prior to, uh, to COVID. And from that fist pump, I could understand that something was up. Now, based on reading this, it kind of made me reflect more that it's such a great tool, such a great understanding of connecting with them emotionally first because if you know there's something going on and this is just good teaching with any student, but if something's going on prior, you can kind of lay back and say, all right, hmm, something's going on with this student. Maybe I shouldn't push too much why they're disrupting so much. And then there's the whole argument of what is really disrupting, right? But then I think that's something we'll be talking about later too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Clancy, go ahead. Well said, Dan, and uh, sir, I agree. I mean, first and foremost, uh, what I garnered from Dr. Emden's book is, again, the relationship factor. But the one thing that, in addition to that, really critical, but one thing that I really, that really resonated with me, and dare I say, new ideas or new approaches, because are they really new? I guess that's a different podcast, Risto, but some of the great models that are out there in physical education kind of explore some of these tenets that of reality pedagogy, the, the cogens and the camaraderie and the students centered approach, all that kind of stuff really does sample some of the models that have gained a lot of traction in the literature and physical education over the last several years, dare I say, decades. Kari? Um, I, well, mine's I'm a little bit more like I thought it was absolutely hysterical when the, the lady in the book had asked him, how can I relate to my students or why they're, they're not paying attention? And he told her to go buy new sneakers. 
And I just thought that was, I started laughing and my mom's like, what, what's so funny? And I said, I've fallen into that by accident. Like I, I, I was a track and field coach and I'd found a G-Shock watch. No idea what a G-Shock watch was, but you know, I had turned it in and no one had claimed it. So the, the track and field director came back and gave it to me. He's like, you can have it. So that became my teaching watch. I have never seen kids like, oh, you're at G-Shock. Ooh, it's a G-Shock. And I was like, what's a G-Shock? <laughs> oh, my watch. Yes, my watch. Um, and then like another time I'd found a pair of Lokes, which are a pair of sunglasses. And it's the, the gangers wear them all the time. <laughs> I had no idea, but they were perfect for teaching. So on they went. Instant hit. And like all of a sudden these kids who, I mean, I had a pretty good relationship with them anyway, but they were like, oh man, you got your Lokes on today. <laughs> and I was like, who knew like that? Like, so, you know, I had learned that pretty early on that kids, you know, they do pay attention to what you, what you're wearing and everything that everything about you, at least during the school day has to kind of be about your students. And so, um, you know, that's one of the things I like, I've, I've related those stories to my students a few times and they're like, seriously, I said, well, you guys lose your mind when I wear something cowboy ish when I'm in Montana. And you guys think that's hysterical. I said, I grew up in Arizona, so I used to wear that stuff. But you guys think it's kind of fun and cool. And then that's the same thing. It's just on a different level. Well, yeah. (laughs) So I just thought that was a fun part in the book, especially that the teacher bought a new pair of shoes and and brought it back and actually kind of followed up. I thought that was very impressive of of that particular teacher as well. But, yeah, our, our, our students really do pay attention to every little detail yeah i i have kind of like i I don't know maybe an opposite i maybe i was that person and i just didn't i didn't listen when i was in um we ran a after school program in east harlem that that was the first year we ran reach there and i used to go from class to this after school program then walk back um back home so i i had these like shorts on and a Columbia University polo. My hair was like like white guy hair. And, you know, I was, I was that literally I was the only white person in that gym. And for a long time, these, these kids would be like, do you play golf? I'm like, I'm a former collegiate division one wrestler. Like I'm like, no, I do not play golf. Nothing wrong with golf. I will eventually get to it. But, um, you know, I was like, what are you talking about play golf? And they're like, well, look at how you dress. And I, and I didn't take the, take the hint at all. I was just like, what do you mean how I dress? I have a Columbia University polo. This is my university. And these are my shorts that I wear everywhere. And these are my running shoes. And it's just like, I just stuck out like a sore thumb. There was nothing that I was doing that I was trying to connect with those students. And so I think it's, it's interesting because you can kind of and I know I have for sure gone through kind of with blinders on. And then when you read something like this and somebody tells, you know, a similar story and you can kind of see yourself as that person, you're like, oh, I missed that. Like somebody told me in different ways that maybe I should think about how I dress to be more relatable. And instead with something like Columbia University being a private Ivy League school, like all these things that come with with that, that I, you know, dislike coming from a a state school undergraduate and the way I kind of grew up. And I, um, but 
Yeah. So, uh, Michael, go ahead. Yeah, all great thoughts so far, and I'm going to take it from a perspective of a health and physical education teacher in a large urban school district. I think the things that resonated with me in this book are things that I've seen in the literature and things that I've seen in, in my own teaching practices. And when I became an induction teacher, um, you think that the control that you need to have over your classes, over your students, is something that is going to completely uh, be one of the most important aspects of your teaching. And I've come to find out working with um, students in, in urban settings is that, you know, students learn best in these settings, as the author states, when they're seen as partners in the delivery of the content and the educational process. And when you see them as partners and that relationship happens, you will be able to better assess what they need and how you can provide for them um, in that setting. So when the co-creation model is, is enacted in physical education, you know, students can develop the agency to challenge their own oppression that exists in these communities. And I think that that's something that, that really resonated with me. And the traditional practices that are challenged in education really stood out to me as well. Because in a traditional setting, if a student got up in your class and started speaking or started went to the front of the room and started talking, we would, uh, in a traditional sense, um, demean that behavior or correct, try to correct that behavior. Um, but in this reality pedagogy, you know, students need to have the ownership to be able to express themselves in the way that their culture and community has. And then we as physical educators and, and teachers alike need to take that and apply it to our own content. So connecting with students and developing relationships are, are all key tenants, but I think uh, having the ownership uh, shared among students can uh, move them beyond oppression and have the ability to, to learn in, in their way. Yeah, I think one of, the, one of the interesting pieces, and we almost got to this already, but it's the disruption, right? And I, I'll be honest, like the way that I taught before, right? When I taught, I had disruptive students. And now when I think back, they were disruptive and it was, it was challenging for me to teach that class. And so I, I silenced that student. I was like, hey, you know, this is not how you're supposed to be behaving. Look at you know, Leo over here sitting quietly. And, you know, I would always, and that's how I was taught, like, you know, reinforce positive behavior, positive behavior is silent, submissive, follow the rules, sit down, crisscross applesauce, you know, bubble in your mouth, peace sign up, whatever we want to say. But um, I'm, I'm not going to continue going. Kenidra, what do you think? So one thing that stood out to me right away, um, and I listened to it on audiobook, it was the part where a student was written up for being disrespectful and not coming to class on time. And 
Dr. Emden witnessed this and the student was really upset and the student was saying things like, this lady doesn't know, the teacher who wrote them up doesn't know what she's doing. And then they were looking at other students, the student and Dr. Emden were watching other students as they were going to class. And that student was saying, is that person late for class? Is that person late for class? But I'm late for class and I'm being written up for it. And all the other students are doing the same thing I'm doing. And it was more about social behavior. And that stuck out for me tremendously because when I taught middle school, I'm telling you, we had the exact same <laughs> conversation. It was the same conversation. It was just like, it, it could have been somebody in my school recording what we were saying to kids all the time. And I got a chance to be a part of our PBIS, Positive Behavior Intervention and Support Committee. And one of the things we looked at was what was considered disrespect, what was considered being um, a disruption. And we had to really unpack that because what was disrespect to Risto may not be disrespect to Kenidra. So that was one area that we had to talk about with teachers in meetings. The other thing we had to talk about was what is it that we want students to do so for example, if you want a child to be in their seat ready to learn when the bell rings, then that's what you need to say. Be on time means be in your seat ready to learn. And that's one thing that we noticed was not in our uh, guidelines or what it meant to, to be late. And so we looked at the language and we made the language fit everybody in the school. So it's not about a race thing or it's not about um, students being singled out, we looked at, okay, so where are some of the holes in the language that we use for what students, what the expectations are? And so we as a PBIS team said, okay, so let's define on time. On time means you're in class, ready to learn. Let's define ready to learn. And that helps, that's what I learned, helps to get rid of some of those, some of the ambiguity around what that meant. And we were trying to have less students written up by defining the guidelines so that all students could be successful. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I kind of um, thought that with like relating that to the idea of reality pedagogy, which I'm sure we're going to you know talk more about for this whole conversation, is that, you know, uh, Mr. Emden, he brought up the example of um, basketball, right? And how him being present at the basketball court um, translated into his classroom, right? So, I mean, in certain communities, different sports play different roles. And like in the example of on a basketball court, like you're never gonna be sitting quietly on a basketball court, right? Talking and being active and participating in a different way than you would in a classroom and what is considered good behavior in a classroom doesn't, excuse me, translate to a lot of these students' lives. That's, that's what really kind of got me with like the idea of reality pedagogy and what it means to be a good student because what it means to be a good student in one setting is not applicable to actual life in that same setting. Yeah. Kari? Um, going back to what uh, Kenidra was saying about that story, that was the first, I read that, I think it was in the first two or three pages, I'm like, oh, highlight, like, Mark down, I can remember this one, because I, I immediately started thinking of an assignment that I could give my intro to teaching kids from that. Um, and it was exactly what you were saying, Kenidra, find the holes in the language, because that student truly thought they were fine. I'm prepared because my friend has a piece of paper for me. And, and like, yes, middle school kids, like, right, I had the exact same conversations with these kids. And I'm like, how, how can you think that's right? How can you possibly think that's right? But in their mind, there was. And in the university students, they're like, 
well, so-and-so will give me a pencil. I just want to, like, are you kidding me? You are, like, 19 years old. Bring your own pencil. But, like, like, so these are conversations that, you know, I think our kids need to be guided, or my students, anyway, need to be guided through because even though they're closer to the K-12 kids, and, like, I'm so not close to the K-12 kids anymore, like, I had to, there was multiple times on campus where I was having to show our teachers the way that our kids think. Um, and like, we always got in trouble when we had to, uh, like go cover a classroom because our classroom management style is so much different than a regular academic classroom teacher. So I can handle a lot of noise. I can handle a lot of chaos. I can see everything going on. Perfect. Everyone's fine. Everyone's doing what they're supposed to be, but like everyone from next door, could you keep your class down? Could you keep my class is fine. So there was, you know, there's, you have to, like, like Kenita was saying, you have to make sure that you are defining exactly what everything means. Um, and it doesn't always mean the same to the teachers as it does to the students. And I think that's a super important lesson for people to learn because our students, you know, we're there for our students and, and they won't learn. Like the whole book, this whole book, if, if you take anything away, it's have a relationship with your students. And if you have that, your kids will do anything. I mean, I got my inner city kids to learn Hannah Montana's hoedown. Um, and that wasn't because I was an amazing teacher. That was because I had a relationship with these kids. Um, and, and, you know, so when you build these relationships, like I, I, that's the one thing I'm striving to make sure my students understand while before they get out into the field. You have to build a relationship and you have to listen to what your students are saying because they are telling you something every single day, whether or not you're listening is a whole different ballgame. Yeah. So that was, I love that. I mean, I couldn't highlight that one fast enough when I saw that one. Like, the assignment was going through my head, like, who and my objectives are going to be this for this assignment? It was great. I was, I love that. Yeah, and I think it's interesting with the quiet kids, right? And the, I wrote this down that quiet kids get rewarded for being on good behavior, but they don't actually learn fully. They just stick to the good behavior. And loud students get shamed for being loud and then when they get shamed or publicly scolded they keep pushing it further and it escalates when at the end of the day if we think about what are our learning objectives for today what do you need to learn can you learn it in a quiet way and can you learn it in a loud way but at the end of the day are you just are you disrupting other people maybe not maybe you're just disrupting the teacher and the teacher is seeing that as like, oh, this is being really disruptive. I need to stop it right now. Uh, but there's so many different ways to learn. And I think that was that was one thing that I got them uh, from there, too. Uh, Dan? Yeah, all amazing points. Actually, that, that was a big part of it. Well, I actually had a question for uh, Kenendra because it was really, um, really interesting about the story that you were explaining. So... The whole thing, okay, in Ontario, we'll, we'll say in Ontario, we have these learning skills, um, cooperation, initiative, right? And teachers check them off and say, oh, this person was cooperative, this person wasn't so cooperative, this person showed initiative, this other student didn't show initiative. But the real, the problem with it is that a lot of teachers are not explaining what these, so, what these skills are. There's no expectations. So Kenendra really highlighted that, which was really cool. This is what it means to be on time. This is what it means to, uh, to be on time in this class. 
It might change from a class to class, but the expectations are there. Easy to read, very clear. Now, I was wondering, because the book, one of the one of the parts of the book that I really liked was the whole idea of, of creating this cosmopolitan. I think that was such a great word uh, that he used in the book. I loved it. And the whole idea that, um, you know, the idea of making the classroom seem like a family where they all have specific roles and specific responsibilities. Right? then you're going back to student-centered learning. Kenendra, did the students that you dealt with at that time for that story, did they get the opportunity to create those expectations? You know what I mean? Like, was it student-led? Were the students, as he says, were, were the students the ones that were developing the criteria for these expectations or these um, uh, the things that they wanted, they had to accomplish? So it's Kenedra. Um, and oh, sorry, sorry, Kenedra. I think that's a great point. So one of the things we did, and we were we were built, rebuilding our PBIS program, and one of the things that we did was we encouraged teachers to have those conversations. So from a committee level, we were revamping the um, disciplinary referrals and we were revamping the guidelines, but we also encouraged teachers to have those conversations in their classrooms with their students to say, hey, we're looking at our PBIS framework and let's have a discussion about our community expectations. The other thing is in that particular school system that I worked in where we were doing all this work, the first two to three weeks of school were, it was a county mandate that you build community. You didn't teach from the curriculum. You didn't do any assessment. The county, the, the superintendent of the county said every single teacher in this county must build relationships for the first two to three weeks of school. Like not to say that it was only for the first to two, three weeks of school, but that was everyone's focus. So you were having community meetings, you were having uh, community circles, you were having conversations about what our community and our classroom looks like. And that includes what your expectations are with student input. And that came from the top down. So that made a huge difference because it puts you all on the same page. And it says that it's important to build relationships and that's what we're gonna start with. So definitely to your question, yes, student input was included. Um, and it was encouraged from the top. And I think that's important as well, because a lot of times teachers will say, well, we don't get support from this particular leadership or that, but you have the influence, because I don't want to say control, you have the influence within mm -hmm. your classroom to implement those kind of guidelines and get student voice and be a part of that. So that was one thing, that was in one particular county that I taught in. Kari? And then we'll go to Clancy. Uh, Dan, just a quick story for you real quick. When I was teaching, um, we did, I don't remember what year that whole get your kids involved and make the rules you know, thing came out. But we embraced it because we had a PD on it. And we did this thing and it was, um, and, you, know, it, you know, it worked for some teachers and it didn't for others. But uh, it was, I think it was, I think I'd had this particular class for sixth grade. I had some of them in seventh grade and then they, they were all eighth graders. And we sat down to put together our class rules. And one kid raised his hand. He goes, hey, miss, is this when um, we pretend that we're going to make our rules, but we really end up doing what you want anyway? And I was like, yeah, it is actually. Good job. Way to recognize. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty funny. Clancy? So um, some good points. And the one thing that I wanted to uh, bring up that kind of come back to Risto's um, mention of, of, of the quiet, passive, subdued student. 
and and how we perhaps reward that student with you know props for being where we want he or she to be. Yet, how ironic that that student may not know what we're we're getting to in terms of goals and objectives. We don't know that answer. So that's a really interesting point. And then, you know, um, Kinedra's point about explaining uh, policy and making language clear for all, that's really important. And I think it even goes one step further about what, what Risto's chatted about previously about not only explaining and articulating policy, but also explaining why. Why is the policy in place or why do we have these expectations? Back to that meaningful PE framework. And then last but not least, and maybe this segues Risto or not or bring it back in, you know me, but I really resonated with um, Dr. Emden when he brought in uh, the discussion about the, uh, the barber, the haircutting, pers- uh, haircutting person or, uh, and, and how we can learn and teaching, we're not too we're not too arrogant. We never take ourselves too seriously to not be able to learn from all others about how we can be better teachers. I think that was especially powerful. Yeah, I, I I found it interesting because they talked about the barbershop, they talked about Pentecostal pedagogy, about teaching like the black preacher in the black church teaches. Um, and that he had to work with a, uh, a teacher who was really good at lesson planning, but was terrible actually teaching that group of, uh, of students, but came from a good university, had you know good social skills with other older people and stuff. And so he was taking him to these different places. And, and I think, I mean, he talks about, like Dr. Emden talks about earlier in the book that he wasn't doing that stuff. He wasn't taking the stuff and Pentecostal pedagogy and, uh, you know, taking the stuff that he was learning from the barbershop. And I think that's what you get from taking time in this in this field and learning through experience. Um, So let me uh, let me go to Kanidra, then Michael, then Sarah. And then I want to transfer over to talking about reality pedagogy and then. Um, really bring up this the term neo-indigenous populations because I think that stuck with me uh, a lot and I want to get to those as well. So if you want to segue into those as well, feel free to do that. Go ahead. I was just going to um, piggyback on what I think Kari, is that right? Did I say your name right? Um, Kari was saying about different assignments to provide students and I think you're talking about collegiate students? Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So one of the things I think about, and mind you, these are the things I think now that I'm out of the classroom. Um, so community agreement. So a lot, a lot of times we speak, right, and we think about how we were taught. And Risto, you mentioned this earlier. So classroom rules, those kids, these kids. But I challenge us to think more about our language and do an activity with our college students that focuses on language. So for example, and I learned this from a professional learning a couple of years ago as a health and teach specialist, we were doing norms, but the, the, the facilitator called them community agreements. And I thought, oh yeah, that makes sense. We are a part of a community. The students, the teacher are a part of a community. It's a community of learning. That makes sense to me. And so when Dr. Emden was talking about barbershops and basketball courts, those are things in a community. So why can't we bring community in the classroom? 
So maybe switching it from classroom rules to community agreement, because we as a community agree that these are the things we need to be successful. And then the second thing I was gonna say was um, about the language. So I started referring to students as my kids, my students, my kids, because I really felt like I could have been their parents. And so sometimes when he mentions this in the book as well, there's this idea that we have to save those kids or make their lives better. Those are my kids. And I would want the best for them as I would want for my own kids. I don't have kids, but if I did have kids, this is what I would want for my kids. So, so taking more ownership of the students in your classroom and seeing them as your own. And that, that has to do with that language piece. So not seeing them as these kids or those kids, but my kids. Yeah. They are my kids. And and I think every single... <laughs> they will always be my kids. I think every single community should agree that having a baseball cap in class does not inhibit learning. And you can't do it in high school when you're 18, but as soon as you go into college, all of a sudden you can learn with a hat on. It's crazy. Sarcasm. Uh, Michael, go ahead and we'll go to Sarah. Yeah, oh, I just wanted to go backwards a bit before we go forwards. I, I was really struck with what, what Dan said about building a family in the classroom and, you know, collaborating with your students and, you know, the author's own personal experiences kind of stuck with me that um, by him attending the basketball games and him attending community events um, gave him social capital and through this community engagement were, were able to then engage their students even more in the classroom for a community field. And students that are from these urban uh, populations have a real strong affiliation for where they're from, even down to the block number that they are. So why can't we create those type of communities within our own classroom that have the same affiliation as uh, those communities that our students reside in? And then I would also say trying to use artifacts and connect context with content is something that I was also struck by in the book. And using artifacts from the communities as anchors of instruction uh, and, and connecting those with your students as well. Um, you know, that would enable students to, to fully, um, you know, fully express themselves and connect with that content and even more so connect with their teacher as well, because when students connect with their teacher, they know uh, what's expected of them and they're able to, to learn even more. Um, but, you know, shifting to the re reality pedagogy, which I'm sure we're gonna get into uh, really soon is, you know, teachers are the experts. Um, the advanced degree is not enough to be an effective teacher. Um, you have to uh, allow the students to really shape the content and the, the experiences that they're going to have. Um, and that's something that I've learned as an urban physical education teacher. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, and you get two bonus points if you use the terms reality pedagogy and another two points if you work in neo-indigenous. So let's see, four points okay, on the board. Go ahead, Sarah. I'll do what I can. So, um, so many 
thoughts are just kind of scrambling around in my head right now. Um, and I wanted to bring up, Kari actually put it in the chat earlier that Kenidra said, um, she said, uh, influence instead of control. And I think that's so, like, I'm going to copyright that and say, Kenidra Tucker said this, and, <laughs> and um, we will make sure that we, you know, uh, give you credit for that because it's such an important thing. And I think so many of our students, at least at the undergraduate level, um, they get frustrated when they, because they think, they think they've got this already, right? They're, they, they love activity, they love to move, and they're just gonna share this love of movement and physical education with the rest of their students, so teaching is just gonna be easy. And like, I love that you think that, but that's, it's not quite that simple. But, um, and then they, you know, what do you do when you've got 27 second graders running around and doing X, Y, and Z? So I do love the, the concept of, um, uh, yes, influence instead of control. And yes, you can charge charge all of it for the copyright, please, Kenidra, please. Um, so that was that was that was a big stepping stone that made me start thinking that you know when we do want to have this reality pedagogy, there's my two points, Risto, um, that we want to communicate this with our students. Um, I was thinking as I was listening to the book and reading the book in all the different ways of how I can sort of make more of this trickle into my own teaching with my students. Um, we have discussions in my classes about, uh, you know, especially in high school PE, the, the concept of having to change into uniforms for PE. Why? Does it make you better at, at you know, being physically active if you're wearing the, the gray t-shirt and the black shorts that were assigned to you by the school? Probably not. Does it cause you more harm to, you know, have to be in a locker room with all of your peers? Probably. Like, so just think, like challenging those norms and, and just kind of knocking down some of those taken for granted things about what teaching PE and what, what teaching is and then what, what phys ed is, I think are, are two really big points. Um, so I, it, you know, I don't get a ton of time with my students, but I try to get them to start thinking in that way to um, sort of um, challenge their own learning and, and not just be a, a teacher that, you know, that it figures it out after the, their undergraduate degree and doesn't do any more learning. I forgot the other word I'm supposed to get in two, there for two my points two points. Left, two points left on the board. So I guess- All right, I'm sorry. Uh, it's kind of like the maple leaves this time of year, just leaving points on the board. Boom. Uh, so in the, in the book, Dr. Emden talks about reality pedagogy, and it talks about meeting students on their local emotional turf and positions the student as the expert in their learning. Now, the teacher is the expert in the content, but the student shapes that content. And the question to you all is, do you feel that you do this enough in your teaching? I feel for me, I think I do this more at the college level. I talk about student-centered pedagogies. I teach about them. We talk about the activist approach. You know, we discuss these things. Did my teaching when I was teaching at the elementary level look like this? Absolutely not. Like thinking about learning how to teach, barely keeping my head above water, and then thinking about how do I make this a student-centered pedagogy? And I feel like, you know, the, you know, Chris Remden was really honest in, in his experience. His first year, you know, didn't go as well as he did. And the reason he came back the second year was to show that he wasn't a bad teacher, that he could actually survive, not thrive, like survive and be a better teacher the second year. 
And I think it's hard right out the gates for anybody, like whether it's teaching your first year as a college instructor after you've just been, you know, taking a bunch of classes or reading a bunch of books and all of a sudden you're in front of 18, 19 year olds and they're looking at you like you're the expert. But you're supposed to remember they are the expert in their learning and you're supposed to be able to move this content to them. And I think that, you know, it's easy, easy to say it. It's easy to preach it. And I, and I think that it's easier for me as an instructor at the university level to tell students that when they become a teacher, when Greg, when you become a teacher, you should be doing this all the time. Um, and Greg's a great example because he actually does it. Um, but I, I think it's I think it's tough, especially in your first year. But I think that that's how you're we're trying to lay the foundation. Um, indigenous neo-indigenous pedagogy, Sarah, two points, Risto. Go ahead, Clancy. Thanks, Risto, and thanks for the special shout out to, for the Toronto Maple Leafs and the playoffs starting tomorrow night. Yay. Go Leafs, go. But um, I think, uh, Risto, you capture uh, the conundrum quite well. Uh, you know, in my situation, in, in, in Pete, same thing. You know, we try to promote uh, a student-centered approach um, you know, what Kinesia has mentioned and, and Kari, the influence factor and Dr. Flory, the influence factor. Absolutely. But even within Pete, we have tension. Uh, when we're watching a lesson, whether it's in person or now with the pandemic, virtually, we, we see these direct, uh, uh, you know, centered teaching approaches that are touted by the mentor teacher because the mentor teacher has been raised with direct approach teaching and acculturated through socialization. Where's Kevin Andrews when you need him? Uh, and, and, and that kind of thing. So I think there's a lot of problems there and there's tension that, um, you know, that's just not easy to navigate. Yeah. Um, and I, I would add to this, the, um, the importance of something like reality pedagogy is pretty apparent in a class like PE because each, depending on what zip code you're teaching in, telling students that running is, you know, running every day is a great way to exercise, you know, that's a great thing and that's true, but depending on what zip code you're in, running, you know, in your neighborhood might not either be safe or it might just not be culturally accepted you might be like sticking out like a sore thumb if you're running around your neighborhood right so that idea of meeting students where they're at i think is really applicable in pe where we're saying we want to be teaching things that students are going to be doing outside of the class because we only see them for an hour two hours a week if, if we're lucky you know yeah, and I think that's a that's a great point. We did a research project, uh, or I was a research assistant on a research project with Laura Azarito, and I got to interview, uh, I think it was like 40-some-odd students in, in urban schools in, in New York, and, and I asked a few of them. We'd been there for a year, and I, I had this conversation with one of them, and I said, well, what do you do to work out? Like, do you just like... Because at that time I was running, I lived close to Central Park, so it was just easy for me to just run down the street, get a jog in, and and he just looked at me. He's like, people don't run in my neighborhood. If you're running in my neighborhood, you're running from somebody. And like it's it's dangerous. Like you don't you don't do that. And I was like, 
what do you mean? Like, you're, you're on the subway line. Why don't you go run in Central Park? And the kid's like, running in Central Park or walking in Central Park is what white people do with, with their dogs. Like, and I'm like, what? It, it was just so strange to me. He was four, four metro stops away from getting to the top of Central Park. But that wasn't an area that he went to. It wasn't where he felt comfortable. So like I, I asked him all these workouts that he do, does because he was, he was like 16 years old and jacked and beat me in a pull-up competition, which now is much easier than it was several years ago. Uh, but, you know, he, he goes on uh, construction equipment, like the scaffolding, and he does pull-ups and dips. And that's just what he does. And that's what people do in that neighborhood. And, and it was accepted. And it was, it was so foreign to me because I just wrongfully i just assume that people just go and tie up their shoelaces and go for a run and it's just not something that um, happens and i think that those are this those are the the stereotypes that i put in that everybody does the same thing as i do everybody has the same access that i do and it's just not true um dan a great workout by the way that's the kind of workout that, uh, that i love uh, anyway um Here's a question. So I I remember 20, close to 20 years ago coming out of teacher's college and learning teachers, we call it teacher's college, faculty of education. Um, in the U.S. referred to as PEED also. It's not very specific like that here in Ontario. But um, so coming out of teacher's college, it was it was this. Like we were taught that students come first, to students in our classrooms, um, constructivism, all these things. They were great. And I remember going into teaching and then being stifled a bit, saying, no, you got to control your class. That be so it became from student first in the front to teacher at the front. And it was like instant. No, no, you can't do that. And the whole thing came out about, you know, don't get too emotionally connected. Curriculum first, right? You got to get these things done. And then as, you know, as the experience builds, you know, I mean, close to my 20th year, it's changed. And I was just wondering, did any of you have that same experience coming out of teacher's college or um, the faculty of education or whatever you call it? Um, and you're like, okay, this is what the book stated. I knew that. That's what I wanted to be. But then it was like, you know, you got brought down a couple of years and you had to build it back up in the next, you know, five, six years, however long it took you to kind of figure out that the way you were being influenced wasn't really the best way. Yep, Kari? Uh, well, that was the one thing in the book that really, really bothered me. And I kind of had to chalk it up to maybe it's an East Coast thing because on the West Coast, we didn't teach the way like and, this, and, and it could be like the random schools that I taught at. But our teachers were very much involved in their students lives. They built to the point where I'm like, are you actually teaching them anything? Or are you just like hanging out and being friends right now? Like it was. Like we really, you know, and I, I learned from an early age, my mother was a teacher and um, every time you went into her classroom, she had pictures of her family. She had pictures of us around. Um, she also graduated from Teachers College up in Canada. So she you know, learned that way. But um, she, uh, you know, so, you know, I had a, uh, I had several role models that, you know, showed me from an early, early stage that if you start to build these relationships with students, once again, you, you, and it's not just students, their parents are involved in this relationship that you're building. 
we have brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and you know i've been to so many quinceaneras i don't even know what to do anymore i do know how to dance at them now i'm pretty proud of myself um but like you know it it, it really i you know I was, who teaches where they're not like involved in their students and not like it was really hard for me to read the second half of the book when it was like teachers don't do this and it's like everyone I know did like we all were very much promoting I mean there were some that I'm like you just don't need to teach anymore like that like you do but you know for the most part most of our teachers were involved um, you know most of them could look at at least if not most if not all of their students and say you know brother sister I know their uncle I you know I've been to one other baseball game um so it was really hard for me to read that um, there were teachers out there that were like, no, we have to do the curriculum. And, and poor teachers that were like, but my lesson plans are awesome. And I was like, who cares? Like, yeah. like are, your kids, are your kids learning? Are they having fun? Like, it was really rough for me to read that because I have always taught. I've always learned. I've always taught. And now I'm teaching my students. You build that relationship. I don't care if they're kindergartners or if they're seniors at the university level you build that relationship with your kids so it was hard for me to read that yeah but we, we gotta also look at cool. we gotta also look at what is what are the alternate pathways uh, sarah you could talk about this in in florida how many alternate pathways you can have to get into becoming a teacher and how urban schools have this huge turnover of teachers that you know you know, Teach for America is a great program to put on your resume, but it isn't always the, and it works in sometimes, right? I'm not, and again, we're not saying that everyone is X or Y, but I think that there are, there are teachers. I mean, we lose like 30, 40% of our teachers in the first couple of years across the nation. So yes, if you're in that school for 20 years, for 15 years, for 10 years, you have learned how to build relationships, but people that go into those schools might go untrained. I know at Cal State Fullerton for a long time when I was teaching there, you know, we could have sent a student that went to only affluent schools for their field experience and their student teaching. And then they're like, hey, I want to work in uh, an inner city LAUSD school. And they have no idea. They have no understanding of the type of teaching or the style or the culture. Like they just had no experience going in there. And that's a disservice that you're doing. And so I think, you know, that's one of the issues with some U.S. universities. Right. Not all. There's not a ton of U.S. universities that are very, very urban. Right. Columbia University, Boston College, things like that. But a lot of them are land-grant universities in in suburbia so they're in these like more affluent more homogenous communities so it's harder for for them to get experience i know suny Cortland talk uh you know has this issue they have a huge amount of pe teachers but they don't have necessarily the diversity that they would want to teach just because of where they where they are so they allow their student teachers to go to Long Island or places like that to get their student teaching experience. So I think, Kari, you're correct in the sense that, you know, you have 10, 15 year veterans and they're doing the right thing. But 
when you look at the vast majority of teachers, when you look at all PE teachers in the US or all PE teachers, I won't speak about Canada because I just go and tourist there. Uh, so I don't, I have no idea how, how things work, but I think in the U S there are a lot of teacher, there's a huge amount of teacher turnover and we, we struggle in, in the peak community to recruit, recruit students. And I think the alternate pathways are there that make it difficult, but, um, Clancy, go ahead and jump in. Thanks, Risto. A great point about alternate pathways. Certainly another discussion we could uh, get into. I, I really um, wanted to uh, get into Dan's question because I think he's on to something. I, uh, you know, I did my teacher prep myself, mid-90s, and I, I seem to recall not so much of a constructivist approach, but more so uh, regimented, routine, systematic observation. Now, it does, it's not to say that you, you weren't encouraged and, and stressed to build relationships, yes, and to be involved and all those things, yes, but they were kind of on the periphery. And, and when, when you were thinking about teaching and successful teaching, it was a direct approach. It was uh, regimented and structured with classroom management strategies in that regard so i you know comparing just my initial uh certification training com compared to maybe the late 90s then and onwards there has been a bit of a shift for sure yeah um so let me let me do a really rough transition because i i laid this out for a very smooth transition to other people but nobody made it so let me talk about this term which i was very surprised to read uh, which was the neo-indigenous population, which is what Emden describes as students who live in inner city urban neighborhoods. And so I, I, the only way I read is audiobooks unless it's a research paper, which nobody does research papers and audiobooks. So that's why I started the podcast because I, I need to listen while I'm doing stuff. But so the UN, he, he just uh, did a definition the UN defines indigenous people, so not neo-indigenous, but indigenous people as people whose existence in a certain geographical location predates the region's conquering or colonial power and see those people as themselves or labeled as, as separate of those who are in power politically. And that was just so powerful to me because when he used the neo-indigenous, I was like, oh, I don't know where he's gonna go with this. And then he explained that and you read back and you're like, they predate the people who came there. So the teachers who are coming in and a lot of teachers, right, right or wrong, like they are told to teach in a specific way. They're taught in a specific way. Here is the curriculum that I have to impose on you. And so it was really powerful because it, it does make sense to me that uh, you know, if we as teachers go in, it's colonization, right? We're colonizing that school. It's, you know, the work teacher workforce is still predominantly white. And um, there are there are way less, uh, you know, teachers of color, which Mara Simon has a great research line on this that looks at the opposite, right? So a teacher of color going into a predominantly white institution, which I, I find fascinating. 
um, her work. But I, I feel that it's so important for us to understand the culture, just as you would as a, I mean, Americans get a bad rap for being bad tourists sometimes. Uh, the ugly American tourist is, is a thing around, around the world because they go in and they impose their own culture and they don't learn. They go to McDonald's and they go in, and this is a stereotype, but there's a, there's a reason why American backpacker, backpackers have Canadian flags on because they're like, I'm not American, I'm Canadian because people judge them based on their behavior. And I think that um, it's, it's really interesting that we have not still gotten to the point where we make sure that those teachers understand that culture, take time. If, if you are a consultant hired by a business to go in and say, what should I fix? The consultant doesn't go in day one and go fire this person, fire this person. This is what we're going to do. They go, let me understand the culture of the, of the area. I need, I need a month or I need two weeks to stick around and understand what is actually happening. Uh, so let's go, uh, Kenidra, Greg, and Sarah. Yeah, I think that's spot on, Rousseau, because I was reading an a, a interview with Dr. Emden about the term neo-indigenous. He was saying that these issues in urban education are not new issues. Traditionally, white Western culture has come into a place where people have already existed, have already been living, and have already been thriving and said, I'm going to eradicate your culture and replace it with my own because there's something wrong with yours. Let's call it what it is. That's exactly what's happening. And so I think you're spot on in terms of what's happening with students. I'm going to come in here and I'm going to tell you that you need to assimilate to white culture because there's something wrong with your culture. And as your teacher, that's, I can do that because I'm in control of this situation and I need you to assimilate so I can better control you. Let's call it what it is. And that's what's happening. So my question then is, um, you know, to your point about the term, when he talked about that in the interview, he was explaining why, why he used the term neo-indigenous, which is exactly what you said. Um, and again, this traditional idea that white is better, Western is better, and therefore everybody needs to assimilate to what is white and Western because what your culture is is not good enough and our culture is better, so we're going to conquer it and eradicate it. And that's the problem. So my question then is, is knowing that what do you people in positions like you all who are who are training up the next group of educators, what do you do to address that? Well, I think, and I'll jump in and I'll answer this. I, I think, you know, for us at Mason, we talk about, we have a whole class on sociocultural issues, a class that starts with your biography. It talks about where did you grow up? What do you see? What was your teaching and your K to 12 experience? How do you identify racially? What's your, you know, you know, religious background, all of this stuff. And we start teaching them about understanding their biases and it works for a lot of students. A lot of students come in with open minds and they're like, oh, I get it. Like, oh, yeah, I could see that I am making this biased lesson plan or I'm not understanding the culture like it's not a one-size-fits-all um, and I it's not enough to have one class on it right but I think we have faculty at our university that does cover these issues across the board but I think it's awareness I think if you're not ever challenged 
and I was never challenged as a, or maybe I was and I just didn't pay attention as an undergrad or a master's student. It took me until my doctoral program and honestly, you know, Laura Azarito who like started challenging me a lot and the people in those classes that said, why do you think that? Have you thought about it this way? And I'm like, I have never thought about it that way. Thank you for bringing that up. And, you know, it's, it's still a process of, you know, reflecting and, and going back and forth. Um, Greg, Sarah, either one of you want to, let me go to Sarah, uh, because I think the question is, is directed towards that uh, teacher educator role. Thanks, Risto. Yeah, it's, it's not an easy job. Um, not that teaching is an easy job, but I, for example, in our program, the students don't come in until the junior year. So we literally have five semesters. And I, I, I joke with my partner that I get five semesters to like unwire my students' pre preconceived notions of what PE is and what teaching is and, and hope that they leave and don't, because a lot of them will come from um, you know, these small towns in the middle of, of the state and they just want to go back home and be the football coach. And that's great. That is great. But like, that's not, that's not going to be the reality for most of the students. Um, so we, you know, and, and at many universities, you'll get one person that's like the token diversity, equity, inclusion person, right? And so all of a sudden it's their responsibility to make sure that, that these, um, some of these ideas are being addressed. Um, we don't have space in our curriculum for the sociocultural issues course, um, but I, I took one as, as a master's student and as a doctoral student. So then I've had to kind of like, you know, weave some of these these ideas into every assignment, every course, every uh, every field experience to try to to challenge those things. Um, and it's hard because students want to push back, um, especially you know, you know, telling a white student that they have privilege is is I'm not privileged. I I'm. I, I have to pay for my own college. Yes, but you're in college, and that's like that, if you can't recognize that as privilege in itself, is that that can be an issue. So, um, so yeah, there's. I mean, we, I've done a lot of um, I've done a lot of different assignments to try to see like what we can um, kind of get students to to walk away with with maybe a, a different perspective. Um, and I used to take it really personally if, if suddenly, you know, if, if I didn't transform all of my students into these woke teachers all of a sudden, right? And I was like, that's my job and I'm failing if I don't do that. But then I also have to remember that, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm working against, if you want to see it that way, you know, 19, 20 years of, of seeing things in a certain way. And I have to just kind of put these little ideas in and hope that they kind of start sticking in. And I've had students that, that finished, that resisted and then have finished. And they, they, they come back later and say, you know, Dr. Flora, you challenged me to think about this or this or this. And, and, and I, I, I definitely like pushed back on that at first, but now I really, I see what you're saying now. And I, you know, for me, I just try to get students to see that um, their way isn't the only way. And they, they really need to take into consideration like the, the broader circumstances. Um, oh, and Risto, you had were mentioning uh, statistics about white teachers. And I literally just put in a paper um, Eighty percent of teachers in the in the U.S. are still white. That's from 2020, uh, and the diversity of public school age children is is still increasing. In the 1970s, we had 80 percent of school children as white, but in 2014, um, we had a majority of U.S. school children were racially diverse. So this 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 concept of even having like minorities, it's not like most of our public school st students are not white anymore, and I don't know why we can't break away from that. So it's exciting to kind of see some of these. Um, the programs and, and the, the, the push to stop accepting white supremacy and stop accepting these things as norms and as, as 
traditions because for who? Like, who does that serve? So, yeah, yeah stop ranting. And I, and I ran into this in, in classes as well of trying to explain to white students that you do have inherent privilege and it was it was tougher for them to understand so i kept on going back and trying to figure out different ways to get to it and i came across this um this research study that talked about how uh white students who come up in lower socioeconomic status have a harder time understanding that they have privilege because they do work hard for a lot of things in life different than an upper class person who goes into private school and then goes into a private university it's easier it's quicker for them if they're a minority right so if they you know it's just white males who have not seen that they have privilege through other ways because they work a job on the side they worked for every penny they got it's harder for them to come to grips with it versus someone from an uh, upper upper class. Uh, let me go to Clancy to answer the, the question about that, and then I'll go to Greg and Dan. So, yes, uh, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll stick to Kenidra's question about teacher prep and what we can do. Uh, I, I think Risto speaks to the good points and Dr. Flory as well with, uh, you know, a course or two, we are in the same situation. And, and uh, I, 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 you know, ideally, I'd like to see more. Uh, but I, I use, uh, I guess, uh, Dr. Flory's uh, philosophy, too, that I believe that we need to weave these discussions throughout a training. And we, and uh, us at Canisius, alongside probably many teacher prep institutions across the country, suffer the same fate, where we've only got them for five months, or excuse me, five years, and, or excuse five semesters, excuse me. And, um, you know, so we have a lot to think about. And, but, you know, I, I, do, I do like the idea of weaving in issues about assessment and how assessment is, exacerbates issues of social justice or secondary methods or elementary methods or, or what have you, because I think all of these topics that children learn, or, well, excuse me, teacher candidates learn in teacher prep uh, can be woven with, social justice issues. Uh, so I, I look at it from that context of weaving um, those discussions within all the topics that we cover in teacher prep. Can you do it? Yeah. Uh, Greg, thank you for patiently waiting your turn. Oh, yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, I was just, um, you know, bringing up the term uh, neo-Indigenous, I'll be completely honest. Uh, when I was reading the book the first time I read this term, I kind of rolled my eyes and I was like, oh, some more, you know, high fluting like academic language that's not applicable to, you know, real. I mean, that's honestly how I felt when I first read it. Um, but the more that I engaged with the text, the more that I kind of understood his use of it um, and kind of like on a broader kind of idea of this term neo-indigenous, um, like <laughs> the right like i this is what i thought of like the war on drugs right is an example of like modern day domestic colonialism right like hollowing out cities and if you if you don't want to take that as an example like another example of the fact that a black man's vote in georgia is worth far less than a white man's vote in georgia in the same state in the same election you know what i mean things like this that 
I think when it comes to teaching, everyone needs to be aware of the fact that where you end up in life is more and more and more an incident of birth, just where you're born and the skin that you're born with, right? And we, like we as teachers, and I'm, I, I haven't taught full-time yet in my life, but I know that teachers in general, especially in physical education, need to at the very least have an appreciation and understanding of that fact, right? And the, the thing that I am, am always think of and I'm kind of disappointed by is the fact that education has for a very long time been the equalizer of if you're born here, you know, you can get educated in that, but it's just, it's so hollowed out, right, in a lot of zip codes in the country, and it's brought up in this book of, like, how many white kids have to experience going through a metal detector to start their day at school? You know what I mean? It's just different. It's more difficult. It's a different set of circumstances than most people have to deal with, and I quickly want to say, because I wouldn't be a fervent reader of Nate Babcock if I didn't bring up the fact that, like, America is supposed to be an explicitly democratic country, but our educational practices are inherently authoritarian, right? Those are the things that, be, that's, that's why education has been so hollowed out in our country, I feel, so. And with that, Greg seats the floor. Dan, you're up. Yes, okay, so the whole, the term of neo-indigenous and indigenous, that was, that was obviously I was waiting to, to talk about this because I still struggle with it because I thought I knew what I was talking about as I read the book. And then I reached out to my candidates. So I teach, like I said, HP candidates. And um, we talked about this at a session prior. And with them, I got one response. When I talked to other colleagues, other people, not teachers, different response. So one really stuck out. And I, I kind of, I had to write it down because I didn't want to forget it. But it was something like, what is, is it fair to use those terms? Is it fair to Indigenous people to use neo-Indigenous or vice versa? Is it fair for neo-Indigenous to use Indigenous? And that just spun me around. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's, how is it not fair? And the person like, well, are you erasing some sort of history by using neo-Indigenous? Can we use another term? And I'm like, I couldn't answer that. And I kind of wish I had a resto and then Denise, the way you explained it, I would have loved to have you there saying, look, this is the way it's supposed to be looked at, because I couldn't answer it, right? And I kind of felt like, hmm, I've got to leave this book over again or talk to everyone here. But that was, it's a mixed bag of emotions and thought processes and, and opinions that it's unbelievable that need to be talked about. And I'm glad we were all talking about it. Yeah. And I think that he got some kickback on that, too. And he talked about that in the book of like, it wasn't just a term that he was able to say right away, like there was pushback on it. And I think that if I remember correctly, that the first time he used it, he used it in a peer reviewed research article. Like that's where he like coined the, the phrase. Um, but uh, I, I think, you know, the book was was really interesting um, for for people who are kind of looking for something. If you're on Audible, it is a free download. You don't have to use your tokens that you get once a month. Um, I'm, I'm a big audiobook person. Uh, but um, I'll, I'll kind of wrap this up because I think we could sit here for another hour and have a longer in-depth conversation. Um, but I, I wrote down some quotes, so I'll, I'll give an opportunity for anybody else that kind of feels like 
they they want a last word or whatever. But you know, the the very end of the book, he uh, he leaves off with this really strong quote that says, "Avoid people who are unhappy and disgruntled about the possibilities of transforming education. They are the enemy of the spirit of the teacher." And I just felt like that couldn't be more true. That it was so like. There's so many people who are negative, who are like so critical about certain things and they just like bring down teachers who are trying to create, who are trying to come in with a lot of passion. Um, I think there's there's room for critique and everything, but I think that there are, there are just certain types of teachers who can kind of sap that. Uh, he also said that misery recruits seduces and romances others in teaching um so i think that you know he, he did he did let leave off on a somber note there uh, at the end of the book uh, i think it was uh, i think he titled it like his reflections on teaching and things that he's still struggling with so it did leave off on this tone of well reality pedagogy of being real like it's not you know all rainbows and sunshine and beautiful days every single day. Uh, go ahead. Can you draw? So I was just going to say, um, thank you. I was going to say two things. One, thank you for, for this platform to have this discussion. This is awesome. Um, and I think more discussions need to happen like this. Two, I was going to say, delving into this kind of work is very challenging because you're, you're calling people out. You're challenging systems that have been in place for a very long time. And you're trying to figure out, like what Dan said, well, what's the appropriate term? Well, is it this? Is it that? You know, there's a lot going on, and it can be very heavy work, but it has to be done. And what I always tell people is to count your successes, count the wins, because there are going to be days when you don't want to do this. There are going to be days when you're frustrated, you're tired, or there are teachers, like you said, who are just not with the program. They're, they're not going to challenge the status quo. They're comfortable where they are, and that's what works for them. But you have to count what's working. You have to count the wins. That's what I do to keep me motivated because if I don't, then I get really tired and I want to give up and I can't do that. And the second thing is when you think about how we as teachers are frustrated and tired, imagine how kids feel. And there was this meme on Twitter or, or Instagram and it said, aren't you tired of talking about racism? And the response was, imagine how tired I am of experiencing it. So I can't think about myself as the teacher who's getting bogged down with everything when we have students who are being um, treated poorly every single day. So I got to take me out of it and do the work. Absolutely. And I, I think that's a really good place to leave this off on. Uh, I, I can't really top that. I feel like that was a really good uh, summary. And I, and you know, again, I really highly recommend the book. I know he has a he has another book uh, coming out in August. I think it's launching. Um, I, I I'm really bad. I, I don't remember the title of it, but it's coming out in August. I saw that. Um, he also has uh, hashtag hip hop ed on Twitter, um, which is something that I explored the last couple of weeks. They do a Twitter chat on Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. I think. Um, but it's, it's just interesting to see, and again, he comes from a science background, math background, STEM, like, so he, he teaches in a different environment than all of us who are, um, who are teaching in 
uh, physical education. So it's a little different, but there's a, there's so much there um, that overlaps. So um, thank you everybody for, uh, for joining in. Really, really appreciate it. Um, you are courageous to come on to a podcast to talk about tough, tough issues. And so um, I, I appreciate your uh, collegiality and your, um, your wisdom and sharing it on the podcast with everybody. So thanks. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.